with announcements this morning, except for uh, to say that we are still collecting hats and mittens. Um, we've done hats and mittens every year for North Goblin for a lot of years now. We, uh, we wrap those and we, we deliver them. I asked the school just to make sure. I said, is this, is this helpful to you? Do you want us to continue to do this? Is there something else? And, and the school was... was uh, was uh, completely supportive of that. And they said, no, you've got to do this. The kids love it. We, we've done this. So the school uh, really finds this to be, to be helpful. Um, just in North Godwin, uh, there's something like 453 students. Last year, we actually did North and uh, West Godwin. So I want to encourage you just to be aware when you're out at places like Target or the dollar store, pick up some hats and mittens. Uh, we really need to to uh, step that up at, at this point. So that's kind of the only announcement. I will note that, that we have lots of people out sick because of the, of the weather. Uh, that's appropriate in your prayers this week to remember them and pray for their, their wellness and their recovery. The, we will wrap those December. When are we going to wrap them? We're going to deliver them the 20th, but when... Yep. So, um, that said, let us jump into the second week of our of our Advent uh, preparation of um, thinking about what it means to know that that there was a longing for the coming of a of a Savior. There was an expectation and a preparation. We talked about last week how Advent historically has been the celebration of, of the idea that in history they waited for a Messiah to come, that the Messiah did come, and we live in an Advent time too because we are waiting for the return uh, of the Messiah. And so we celebrate in Advent this time of waiting between Christ's first coming and his second coming, and we study from, from Scripture uh, what that means. Uh, this week we're going to be in, uh, in Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 39 and going through verse 56. And I'll read to you then uh, from Scripture. In those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth had heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside me. Blessed is she who, will be, who believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. And Mary said, My soul praises the greatness of the Lord, and, the spirit, and my spirit rejoices in my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will be blessed, because the Mighty One has done great things for me, and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones, and he has exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy, to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to, his, to our ancestors. And Mary stayed with her about three months, and then she returned to her home. We're going to focus mainly on, a, on the song here. Uh, you can't see because of the way... Oh, you can. It, it does sort of show up. Uh, what happens here... In, in this passage 
is a song, and it's a song of Mary, and it's a song of worship, and we're going to use it uh, to uh, to talk about what how that how that song functioned in, in history, and how we might also uh, might also sing or or worship. But this is essentially a song of worship on on the part of of Mary. Uh, you might have noticed, you, even if you're, if you're new with us and this is the, the first time, you might notice that the way we do worship at, at Crosswinds is unusual. Or the way we do church at Crosswinds, I should say, is unusual. Usually when you walk into a church, uh, or most churches that you walk into, what you get is, is a few songs and they sing, and then they go to a time of preaching, and then there's a song at the end. Uh, that's not every church, but that's, that's most churches in my life that I've experienced, and that's what I grew up with. We have intentionally inverted that at Crossman. So if you're, if you're uh, visiting with us and you're going, when's the singing part come? Well, that comes at the end for us. And there's a reason for that. is because we have a, have a basic belief that worship is instructive. In other words, worship has something to say when we worship or when we sing to God. The songs that we sing, the things we say to, the, to him, teach something. And so we moved it to the end because... Typically, when we, when we preach on a, on a passage, what Pastor Aaron will do is he'll pick songs that will continue to, to teach or, or explore or, or illuminate the idea that we have just preached about. And so whatever we, we say about God or about Jesus in, in the preaching time in, in the morning, we're going to sing songs that reaffirm or re, uh, re-teach or instruct on, on those ideas. I want to say to you that in general, worship is, is instructive, and we use it that way in, 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 at, at Crosswinds. And that's why we've, we've typically sung uh, later. I, I point that out to say that in Mary's song, we find something that, that is instructive, not only to us, not only does it tell something to us, but they think that it's very likely that this song, which is recorded for us once in Scripture, Mary probably sang to Jesus after he was born throughout, uh, throughout his childhood. And so there's a high likelihood that this, this song was instructive to Jesus himself. We say that because if we go forward into, into the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' longest period of extended teaching, we find the seeds of what he said in this song. We find a, a repetition of the ideas that Mary has sung repeated in the teaching of Jesus uh, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, can we say that that is for sure true? No. Can we say that it's likely? I think we can. And here's, here's the idea that I want you to catch from that. It's simply this, is that we are preparing for the coming of, of a Savior in Advent, right, the return. But in, in, in the passage we're using, we're preparing for the coming of, of a Savior into history. At the time when Mary sings this song, that Savior is inside her, her stomach. He is Jesus. Jesus is going to come to be born. He's going to grow uh, in, in stature. He's going to grow in knowledge. And he is eventually going to be recognized uh, by us and all who worship him as the Messiah and as the Savior. But there's a period of time between them, the time when he's a baby and the time when he grows into that, that he, because he, he is human, has to learn and discover who he is. He has to learn and discover the Word of God. And that's an unusual thing for us to think because we understand on the theological level that Jesus is God. That is a true statement. But we also understand that, that the mystery of the incarnation or the mystery of Jesus uh, coming to earth is that though he is fully God, he was also fully man. And so when he stepped out of heaven 
and decided to become, uh, become a child, to be born a, of a woman, he set aside the free exercise or the free practice of, of some of his, um, his divine attributes. One of the divine attributes of God is we know that they're all-knowing. But Jesus, because he decided to come as a, as a human baby, freely set that aside for a time. So Jesus had to learn, right? It, that, that sometimes goes against what we think about, what we process about God. But I'll just point this out to you, that he was a baby, which means that he was not born walking. He had to learn to walk. He was not born talking. He had to learn to talk. He was not, uh, he was not born doing many of, of, of those things. He had to learn those things. We know that he went to the temple. We know that they were amazed by his understanding. But we also know he was listening to teachers. And so there's this, this period of, of, of self-discovery and discovery of who he is. And God has placed in his life people uh, like Mary and his mother to, to teach him to help him discover who he is. And so I, I say that to, to point out that it is highly likely that what we study today, because we recognize the same things later in the teachings of, of Jesus, is that Mary not only sang this song once, but it might have been a song that she sang to him. So if you're a parent and you have a, and you have a child and you hold, uh, you've ever held your child and sang to them uh, a nursery rhyme or a song or, or a worship song, uh, for instance, for a lot of us who, who uh, grew up in the church, one of the first songs we learn is Jesus Loves Me. We might have been sung that song as a baby, as our mother held us, uh, as she held us on her knee, as we got older. What I'm saying is, is that it's highly likely that Mary actually uses this song instructively or she sings this song regularly to Jesus as he grows in, into a young man and begins his ministry, uh, which is just interesting to think. But ultimately what I want to point out is that worship in general is instructive and we're going to look at the worship song of Mary and say, what does this teach us? And so because worship is instructive, we'll begin actually in verse 46. And say this, Mary said, so it, it's a poem, but it's in, in poetic form and, and likely becomes a song after that. And Mary said, my soul praises the greatness of the Lord because he has looked on favor, or sorry, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So when we talk about worship and about this passage, what is it instructing us? How do we see Mary uh, carrying out worship? First of all, she worships God for who he is. It says, my soul praises the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. The, the first idea, the cornerstone of, of worship, and the, the thing I would want you to always understand is that when you come into worship, you come to worship God first because he's worthy of it, because he deserves it, because it, it is due him. You, you, it, it, it is true that there's going to come a point where we talk about other aspects in worshiping him, but the first the first reason of worship is that God is worthy of worship. He is of himself and of his own existence and of who he is, of his nature. He is the highest of everything that there is. There is nothing higher than God. That's why Genesis 1-1 begins with, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It's why it tells us that God spoke that into being, that it is the word of his mouth that created and made it. The creator is always naturally above 
that, what is, that which is created. He is the one who made everything that is. He is the one who made all that we see. He is the one that made our breath. He's the one who made our hands, our feet. God is higher than everything because he is the creator and the maker of everything. He was not created, but he always existed. He's the eternally existent one. Not only does he create, uh, create that which is physical, meaning the earth and the planet, but he creates the, the parameters upon which the planet works. And so we have in, in human conception a concept of time. We have that because God made the earth to rotate in such a way that we get night in day so that we can mark time. We understand time as humans. Even that very concept is created by, by God. The fact that we communicate, the fact that we, we talk, the fact that we interact, our emotional uh, uh, side, uh, the, the fact that we relate to other humans, all of these things made by God and for God, Scripture would say. But the, the point is, is that God, because he is the maker of all things, is intrinsically worthy of worship. He is greater than all that is. He is the one who is due praise. And so Mary says, my soul praises the greatness of the Lord. She understands at this point his greatness. Remember we talked about last week that she's likely a young girl somewhere between the ages of 12 and 15. An angel shows up on the spot, tells her that she's favored. The angel, the, the favor that is declared to her though does not instantly whisk her into some great, uh, some great success, does not instantly whisk her into some great riches, but rather whisks her into a life where she's on her run on the run from a madman king where she has to fear being divorced by the man she's engaged to all kinds of, uh, of, of struggle it happens with the favor. But Mary, because she has heard and trusted what God has said through the angel, is understanding that God is great. He is worthy of praise. The first point in worship ever is that God himself is worthy of worship. God himself is worthy of praise. And that is how Mary praises him first. But secondarily, once Mary has, has, has praised him for who he is, he is great. Who he is, he is Savior. Those are who he is. Then she is going to worship him for what he has done. So my soul praises the greatness of the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He is great. He is God. He is Savior. But now she is going to worship him for what he has done because he has looked on favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed because of the mighty one. Again, that's who he is because the mighty one has done great things for me. That's what he has done. And his name is holy. That's who he is. And so you're going to see this interplay uh, in, in this whole passage between who God is and what he has done. And Mary's response is, is worship. She's going to praise him for what he has done. He has shown her favor. The favor we talked about, again, was not instant success, but it was being allowed to participate in the holy, righteous working out of the plan and the revealing of the Savior to the whole world. She got to participate in, in maybe the most significant way any human besides Jesus, who is also God in the flesh, has got to participate in this. So he has looked, on me, looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant, Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. That is what he has done. Because the mighty one has done great things for me, and his name is holy. 
His mercy is from generation to generation. What has he done? He has, be, uh, he has been merciful on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his great arm. He has scattered the proud because of their thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever just as he spoke to our ancestors. So he, she worships him first because of who he is, and we see that interplay all throughout who he is and what he has done. Who is God? What has God done? Who is God? What has God done? Who is God? What has God done? That, become, that forms the cornerstone for our worship. When we come, when we later in this service sing praise, we are going to sing of that interplay. We are going to sing of the greatness of who God is, and we're also going to worship him for what he has done. Those are an interlocked thing because the greatness of who he is who he is results, as she says in verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Who he is is great and mighty. What he has done is he is related to who he is. He's a Savior. He's a rescuer. He's looked on her condition, her humble condition. He has, he has shown mercy from generation. He has done mighty deeds. He has scattered the proud. He's toppled the mighty. He's satisfied the hungry. He sent the rich away empty, and he's helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy. God is to be worshipped because of who he is, but also because of who he is, he has done great things. He is to be worshipped for his greatness. Now, as a, as a parenthesis of application, I would say this, we need to be worshipping God because of who he is, but also because of what he has done. And then if, if that is true, we should also be expecting because of who he is that God is going to continue to do great things in us and for us and to us and all around us. In other words, I worry sometimes for some of us that we read scripture in, in, in such a way that we believe that God is a great God, that he has done great things, but all of the great things he has done are relegated to the past. And my worry about that is simply this, is that we are made in him to experience great things from him. And I talked to you last week that, that God's great things do all, not always equate to cars and fences and, 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 uh, and, and trophy wives or the other things that our world might call successful. But God's greatness does relate to participation in his plan, being allowed to, to speak of and reveal the goodness of the fact that there is coming again a king, that Jesus will one day return. And when he does return, he'll make all things new. He'll wipe out all things awful. He'll destroy the effects of sin. He'll, 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 uh, he'll, he'll obliterate the effects of death. He will do great things. And so so I want you and I want us to hear this is that God did not cease to do great things in some time past, but God is still and continues to be a doer of great things. I want you to hear that so that you can worship and pray rightly, that you can say to him, God, do great things in us. Let us be greatly involved in the revealing of the coming of your Savior. Let us participate in your plan to show yourself to the world. Do great things in Godwin Heights so that Godwin Heights might know you. Do great things in Godfrey Lee so Godfrey Lee might know you. Do great things on the west side of Grand Rapids so that the west side of Grand Rapids might know you. Do great things in Crosswind so that we might be great missionaries. But, but even beyond that, it is okay to pray, God, do great things in my family 
so that it might be restored. God, do great things in my heart so that that it might worship you greater. God, do great things so people might see your great act and come to worship you more. It is not wrong to pray that God act in a great and mighty way in our time. He has done great things in the past. He did not cease to be God when Jesus ascended into heaven. He does not cease to be God because we are waiting for Jesus to return. He is still a doer of great things things. We worship him because of these great things, but we should also expect from him great things. As long as when we say great things, our heart is tuned to what greatness means in this sense, that the great things are the things of him. The great things are the things that show him more. The great things are the things that cause us to be more like him. The great things are the things that cause more to worship him. The great things are the things that cause sin to go away. The great things are the things that that cause a husband and a wife to reconcile. The great things are the things that cause, cause someone who is sick to receive healing. See, sometimes I think we think, well, God doesn't work like that. So go to the doctor and hope. Right? And I thank you, Jesus, for doctors. I believe strongly in doctors. But I also believe this, that God is not limited by anything in Scripture or in his nature from healing you when you are sick. He's not, if he's, if he's not, if he can't heal you when you're physically sick, then you have to wonder, is he powerful enough to heal you when you're emotionally sick? And I say the answer to both of those things is no. God has the power. Right? Don't worry. I am still at na- by, uh, uh, by nature and, and, and by life training uh, a good Baptist boy. Right? Then we will not at any point uh, be inviting long lines of people up here so that I can blow on you, have you fall over, and have you, you know, we're not going to do uh, any sort of, like, this is, a, this is a microphone. I don't have a speaker in my ear with someone in the back going, the guy coming forward has, the, you know, like that TV thing where they fake healings. I'm just saying, we're not, we're not doing that. I'm just saying this. If God is mighty... And if God is powerful, and if he has done great things in Scripture, why in the world would we expect anything less when it is part of his character? We should expect great things to happen. We should expect to experience the very presence of God in our lives, and we should expect to see him do things that are miraculous. Because if what we're looking for in life is just stuff that we can do, what is the point in having a God? I understand what you say, well, I'm saved, but to what? You are saved to a God who is mighty. You are saved to a God who is powerful. You are saved to a God who is is all-powerful, has all the power in the world. Do you really believe that he, he is holding back his power from you? Or do you believe that in your life he wants to continue to do great and amazing and powerful things? I'm talking to you like this because I suspect that many of you, like me, did grow up as good Baptist boys or, or, or girls or were saved into it. And we have been sort of, sort of um, hamstrung. We've been sort of tied up by, by, the, by fearful teaching, teaching that worried that we would become too attached to God doing great things that we might forget the greatness of the one who does them. And so I'm saying to you, that is good to make sure that the focus is always on God, but the focus should never be on a God who doesn't exist. And a God who does not do great things is not the God of Scripture. 
And we should be, have an expectation. We should have a heart. We, we should want to see God do great things. And so I'm preaching to you like I'm preaching to me. I have found myself in a place in life where I realize that more than anything, I need to experience the direct presence of God to know that he is with me, to see Jesus through his word and through prayer, to experience Jesus and see him face to face. And I need to acknowledge and I need to call out to a God who is not only able, but he is willing and wants to do great things. He wants to transform my community. He wants to transform my family. He wants to fix uh, uh, our bodies. Now, are there times then, just to differentiate, where God doesn't want to fix our bodies because his glory will be shown to be greater and not fix it? Absolutely, right? This is another, just parentheses, but one of the greatest moments in scripture is this, is that Jesus finds out that his friend Lazarus is sick and he's far away. He's about a day away, walking time. And Jesus stays two more days where he is. And, and then he starts to walk back to where Lazarus was. And they say to him, they said, when, when he gets back, they say to him, if only you would have come sooner. If only you would have come sooner, you could have kept Lazarus from dying. And Jesus says, no, I stayed away longer for your own good so that you might see the glory of God. Right? God might want to be mighty in fixing your sickness. He also might want to be mighty in allowing your sickness to grow in your body. God does what he wants to do. That's what makes him God. But he does great things. And we can only assume that when God acts, however he chooses to act, that it is great because that is consistent with his nature. So, that said, she praises him for his greatness. Then she praises him for what he's done. So worship is about who he is. Worship is about what he has done. And then Mary's worship is about who he has done it for, which is also instructive. Verse 48, he has looked with favor on his humble servant. He is, verse 50, he is mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. Verse 51, he has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. Verse 52, he has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. Verse 53, he has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel remembering his mercy. Verse 55, to Abraham and his descendants forever. So part of worship is this, is it not only reminds us who God is, but in worship we are reminded exactly who we are. And so Mary, Mary is, is connected and understands who she is when she says, he has looked on, with favor on, his hum, on the humble condition of his servant. She also knows who she, who she is when she says he has toppled the mighty and exalted the lowly. She knows who she is when he says he has satisfied the hungry. See, all of these things are going to appear again in Jesus when he does the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, they're nascent forms of what Jesus is going to say when he does the Beatitudes and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. 
The reason he says that uh, another translation, by the way, of, of that, blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, spiritually, it means this, is blessed are those who come to the table of Jesus realizing they have no food to bring. Right? Blessed are those who come to Jesus knowing they have nothing to offer. See, Mary, Mary in her worship acknowledges that because God is great, that's the only reason she has received anything. And it puts a right spotlight on her own condition. So Mary in this passage is always on the side of the humble. Mary in this passage is on the side of, of the lowly. Mary in this passage is on the side of the hungry. Now, there's two, two things to be said about this. One is I think there's the spiritual reality of this, which is that when we come to worship God, we need to realize that we come to his table with nothing to offer. We are house guests who did not bring any food. We didn't show up. And the reason we didn't bring any food to, to, to be God's house guest, the reason we didn't is because we had none to bring. Our refrigerator was bare. It was empty. We looked under everything, and there was not a crumb that we could prepare. There wasn't a crumb that we could, could get out. There wasn't a situation. Sometimes when I say to, my, say to my kids, there's like, can I have this? And I'm like, no, you can't have it. I don't have any money. My kids will say, well, just use your card. And I say, you don't understand how that works. This card is attached to a bank. There's nothing. When I say nothing, I mean nothing. And sometimes they think when I mean say nothing, they mean you just don't want to get this for me. Which is sometimes true. But other times, when I say nothing, I mean nothing. Like there's not a penny in the bank. I've had experiences in my life. Yes, I have a piece of plastic attached to the bank. But if you go back through the internet and go into the electronics and you go back to the bank, you'll discover a minus sign in front of the number. If you're not into banking, if you're young and don't know that, a minus sign is not good when it comes to banking. Right? And so what this is saying is, is that Mary is on the side of one who realizes that she comes to the table of the living God with nothing to bring. She did not bring a, a, she did not bring a, 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 a dish to pass. She had nothing to bring. She searched the refrigerator. She looked under everything. There was nothing. She looked in, the, in, in our house. Sometimes if you have candy, you'll hide candy so no one else will get it. And so she looks in the drawer. Is there candy? No, there's nothing. She searched the whole house over. There's nothing to bring. And still, she comes to the table of the living God and finds that the table is filled. She just contributed nothing to it. That's what Mary is talking about in worship where she says, she talks about... Uh, 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 he has satisfied the hungry. That's what God does. He satisfies the hungry. And he doesn't satisfy them with the work of their own hands. He doesn't satisfy them with the pie that they baked. He doesn't satisfy them with the dish that they brought. He satisfies them with the food from his table because they had none to bring. He scatters the proud. He topples the mighty. And he exalts the lowly. That is the place you should see yourself in Scripture. Sometimes when we, when we read, read scripture, especially when we read it, to, the, read it to, to small children, we'll read these stories of, of heroes in the Bible, and we will come to associate ourselves with, with the, the, the heroes in the Bible. I'm like that biblical hero or that biblical hero. The problem is, as you study the biblical heroes, you discover that they're not really that heroic. People like King David, the adulterer and murderer, 
right? Other people in, in, in Scripture, you have the wisest man who, who essentially ends up killing himself for his love of women, and for his love of power. It's all over scripture. There aren't any heroes. And so one of the things I tried to teach my kids when they were very young, I'd say to them, are there good guys and bad guys in the Bible, guys? No. What is there? There's, there's bad guys and there's Jesus. Only two kinds. And so Mary realizes this when she says these sorts of, sorts of things. Now, if you don't realize it, if you're like, well, maybe Mary's wrong, then you find yourself on the opposite side of Mary who is receiving great things. Because if you're not the hungry, if you're not the humble, then that makes you the proud and the full and the rich. And listen to what happens to them. He scatters the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He's toppled the mighty. He satisfied the hungry, but he sent the rich away empty. See, in worship, we need to know who we are so that we approach God as we should. How do we approach God? We approach him as people showing up with nothing to bring. When we go to the table with nothing to bring, when we approach him with nothing that we've brought, we're bid, come, sit at the table, be filled. However, if we get confused and we think that we can approach the table of the living God on our own, if we think that we have something to bring, if we convince ourselves, well, God needs to work with someone like me. Look at my skills. Look at what I can do. Look at what I brought. If we come to the table of God with a righteousness of our own or what's called self-righteousness, the result is that we will not be filled. Rather, we'll be toppled. We'll be scattered. We'll be sent away empty. When you come to worship when I come speaking, when I finish speaking, we'll begin to sing. You should ask yourself as you begin to sing to God, do you know who you are? Are you empty? Are you humble? Are you hungry? Are you lowly? Are you a servant? Do you fear God? Or are you approaching him proud, thinking you bring something to the table? Are you approaching him as though you were mighty, thinking that you could topple a throne? Are you approaching him like you're rich, as if you can come to God and just purchase from him that, God, I have money too. We're peers. See, when you come to God like you're rich, you think you're a peer. Let me purchase from you, God. Let me purchase a little of your favor. We're boys. We're buddies. We're peers. No, you're not God's peer. You're poor, but if you come to him thinking you're rich, the result is you will be sent away empty because a prerequisite to the coming to the table of God is a hunger that you know that you have no chance of filling. It's an emptiness that you know that you have no chance of filling. It is, it is a lowliness that you know that you have no chance of being lifted from unless you come to the table of the living God the mighty one who, who topples the other mighty, the rich one who scatters the other rich, the merciful one who rescues his enemies. Because that's there too. And so what I want to encourage you if this is that as we come into a time here of worship and as we walk through this Advent season how will you worship God? Will you worship him for who he is? He is great and mighty. 
Will you worship him for what he has done? He has, with his body and his blood, reconciled people from every tribe, language, nation, and race. And will you come to the table as you are, poor, wretched, and lowly, so that you might be given an inheritance of who he is. He is righteous. He is rich. He is the filler of the hungry. I pray that you will come into worship and worship him as you are and as he is so that you might receive from him the mercy that you need and I need and so that you might experience in your life the greatness of what he can do for you. Pray with me.